You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning. As you're turning there, I want to encourage you to um, continue work on the memory verse, which is in verse 28. One of the ways to work on that is uh, for yourself is we put at the bottom of the sermon notes in the bulletin uh, the verse with some blanks in it, and uh, each week we'll increase the number of blanks, um, but th- that allows you to start thinking of the verse, memorizing it uh, a few words at a time. And uh, so this morning... Um, we uh, re- rehearse it together, re- together, we recall it together. Who is it that we proclaim, church? Him, Him we proclaim, warning everyone with all, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in, in Christ. The Him is Christ as well. And uh, so we rejoice in that. We proclaim Christ with the goal of presenting everyone mature in Christ at the last day. You might say that our proclamation is for, uh, for the purpose of presentation. That's really a key component of, of the vision of any faithful church of Jesus Christ. Um, we preach Christ to present everyone as mature disciples in Him. And uh, so let's continue working on that together. Well, this morning we're hearing from the Apostle Paul about that ministry, what a faithful ministry is. We read it in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Lord, we quiet our hearts before You. This is Your Word. Give us ears to hear it, Lord. Use me this morning as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we started to see Paul's appeal or his uh, message, if you will, the purpose of his letter to the Colossian Christians. We begin to see that take place, uh, take shape, if you will. Verse 23, continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, 
not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they had heard. This is getting to the intent of why Paul is writing them to them. He wants them to continue in the faith. And, and that call to loyalty to Paul's gospel, not shifting from it, it cannot be separated from a, a loyalty to Paul himself the one who is bringing them uh, this gospel. We must remember that they had never met Paul. They're just receiving this letter. They've heard about him. But it seems that there were other, perhaps, uh, teachers, false teachers, ministers who were undermining the gospel message. And so Paul, in this particular section, uh, in the Colossian Christians are invited, if you will, to uh, examine Paul's calling to examine the shape of Paul's ministry. And so what we have from this, I think, is a standard for ministry for every generation. As Paul explains himself and his gospel, his ministry to them, um, it's a standard for every generation. What are the marks of a faithful ministry? What should pastors and be doing uh, in, in the church? How will we be able to assess whether... Uh, we're being faithful in those things, what a God-given ministry looks like. The text doesn't tell us everything we, about that, but it does tell us a whole lot. In fact, it tells us eight aspects, according to John MacArthur, and uh, I'm only going to be using some of his outline. You can be relieved of that today. Amen. Just four. Um, as uh, to these aspects, we're going to look at the first four aspects this week, Another four we'll look at next week. We begin first, though, with the source of ministry. The source of ministry. The source of Paul's ministry. Actually begins at the end of verse 23 when he's speaking of the glorious gospel concerning Christ. He says, uh, of which I became, I, Paul, became a minister. And then he repeats that phrase. Notice in verse 25, he says, of which... I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Very interesting language. Notice um, the word servant there or ministers. Actually, the word diakonos is the word deacon. It means servant, one who, who serves. In this case, Paul says he is a servant of Christ. He is a servant of the church a servant of his gospel. And uh, notice how it came to be. He says, I became a minister. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? He's, he's, he's reminding us and, and the Colossians, I didn't make myself a minister. Paul did not self-appoint himself to that role. He was acted upon by God. He says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. Now, you think about Paul's testimony of how he came to Christ, his call to, to ministry. Uh, he recounts that to in uh, several places, but one of those places is Acts 26 to King Agrippa. He shares of his testimony of how that call came to him on the Damascus road. He writes in Acts 26, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuted, persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant. Again, notice Paul did not self-appoint himself, but he was appointed. He said, I was a persecutor. I was on my way to Damascus to do that very thing. I was going there to persecute Christians, to kill Christians. I was going one direction in my life, and God intervened, and he saved me. And he made me a minister. Later on, another testimony of Paul. This is 1 Timothy 1. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I have received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice, it is by grace and mercy of the Lord, the sovereignty of the Lord, that Paul became a minister. Paul says, I was appointed by, by God. He uses the, another word he uses there to express this is in verse 24, the word stewardship. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. It means responsibility. It's a word that, that could mean something like deposit or a management responsibility uh, such as given to an overseer. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul calls it being entrusted with the gospel. He's been given this deposit of the gospel uh, to, to faithfully steward. In Titus 1, Paul says a pastor must be a steward of God. And so the picture is this ministry is a trust. It's a stewardship that has been given to someone by God. Paul is, says, I am a mere servant of God and his gospel. And it reminds us, it addresses the question, how does one become a pastor in the church? How does the Bible determine the inception of pastoral ministry. And the answer biblically to that is pastoral ministry is given by God. And it's modeled for us all throughout the, the scriptures, from the, the prophets in the Old Testament who were called, who were appointed by God, to the apostles in the New Testament who were. And, and, and each God is the one who took the initiative. God is the one who initiated the call. This is not something that you volunteer for, not something that you self-appoint yourself to do. When I was a, a young man, nearly 33 years ago, a little over 33 years ago, I was wrestling with whether or not God was calling me to the ministry, one of the advice I was given that I thought kind of strange at the time was I was told that if I could do anything else, I should do it rather than ministry. I thought, well, that's a strange thing to say. And I 
Derek Prime, in his book, Pastors and Teachers, he says the same thing. He says, if you can avoid entering pastoral ministry, do so. If you can do something else, do it, he says. If we put it in a slightly uh, different way, we might say, how will you know that you're called to pastoral ministry? Well, the answer maybe is when you can absolutely do nothing else. <laughs> that sounds bad too, doesn't it? I, don't, I can't do anything else. But what's meant by that is, and I think what these wise teachers were driving at, is when there is a, such a burning desire to serve Christ and to preach His gospel, uh, similar to what Peter and John said in Acts when they were told to stop preaching they said acts 420 we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard i think that's what paul is is saying here when he is called by god appointed by by god god may or may not call you to full-time vocational ministry and i'm not sure we can be definitive about what that, in, that call would entail or how it would come about. I would remind you, though, in a general way that he has given every single one of us as believers a stewardship. He has, first of all, if you're in Christ, he has given us the gospel, hasn't he? The gospel. To be witnesses of that gospel, he calls us. Ambassadors of that gospel. Proclaimers of that gospel. He has given each of us a spiritual gift. If you are in Christ, He has given you a gift by which to serve the church, to serve brothers and sisters in Christ. He's called you to use that gift for His glory. Uh, he has given us, if you're in Christ, He's given us His Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us in His Word. He has given us His Word, the Bible, to lead us. And someday we will all stand before the Lord and give an account as stewards would for the faith, how faithful we have been in the Christian life. Are you being faithful in those things? If you're wondering if God is calling you to ministry vocational ministry, I think the best thing I would tell you to do is to continue to do those things and to continue to seek with all of your heart those very things, His Word, His Spirit leading and working in your life, using your gift to serve the Lord, being a, an ambassador of the gospel. Continue to follow Him. And then I would say surround yourself with godly men, ministers in the church who can help you to discern your calling. Because there is a warning here that's kind of implicit, I think, that Paul is arguing for here is beware of becoming like one of these uh, self-styled, self-appointed ministers in Colossae who were undermining the gospel. Right? They may have been impressive, Paul is saying. They may have been persuasive to some of the Colossian Christians, but they were dangerous. They were apparently like the prophets Jeremiah spoke of when he said, I did not send these prophets, and yet they prophesy. And so be warned of that. Alistair Begg writes this, it will actually be apparent to all when a man is in the place of divine commission. And I think that's a good word. Paul says, I became a minister 
according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. The source of my ministry is God. The second, secondly, he mentions the spirit of ministry. Of this gospel, verse 23, I, Paul, became a minister. I became a servant of that gospel. And then look at the first three words of verse 24. Now, he says, I rejoice. By spirit, I mean they're not the Holy Spirit with a capital S, but an attitude. What kind of attitude should one who serves in the ministry have? Paul says it should be one of joy. That ministering, whatever our ministry is, it should be one of joy. That is challenging, and I can tell you in... in, uh, nearly 25 years or so of, of doing this, that there are seasons of ministry that have not been very joyful. There were seasons in which I have much more related to uh, Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet, and uh, other seasons where I found myself like Jonah, uh, hesitant to, reluctant to celebrate uh, it's easy to get discouraged with circumstances when it comes to, to the ministry. And there's a heaviness of heart that comes in ministry as well for lots of reasons. And the Apostle Paul shares a lot of those throughout his letter. And I think all of us as a, as a church, we've felt some of the heaviness of that. And so sometimes when I read this, my eyebrows go up a little bit and I say, well, either Paul is kind of off his rocker here or he's a man of extraordinary conviction to be able to write those words. And he is a man of extraordinary conviction, isn't he? There's a reason he says joy. It wasn't that Paul never felt discouragement or despair in the ministry. Of course he did. There's testimonies of that in his own words. But Paul was so gripped by the message the truth he was proclaiming, the gospel work he was doing, and even more significantly so, so gripped by what God had done for him in Jesus Christ that there was always this deep joy undergirding his life. He wrote about that already, didn't he? Back up in verse 11, he said, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us. There is a joy in the gospel. There's a joy simply if you have been saved by Christ, a joy in Jesus that comes into our lives. And so we have to remember that and cultivate that. We see Paul doing that, I think, in his own life. When you, when you read Paul it's like he never got over the mercy and grace that God had shown to him. He never moved on from that. And so when you find him uh, uh, as he is when he wrote this letter to Colossians in jail, he, he's rejoicing. His joy is not tied to circumstances or his feelings. His joy is tied to Christ. What a word. He wrote Philippians close to the same time as he wrote Colossians. He told them, Philippians 4, 4, you know this verse. He said, rejoice in the Lord sometimes, right? Now, wait a minute. That's not what that was. What's the word he uses? Always. 
And it's like he says, I don't think you heard it. Again, he says, I will say, rejoice. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. In Acts chapter 16, you find the story of of, uh, Paul thrown in the the dungeon. He and Silas are in the stocks, and uh, it's midnight, (laughs) and they're singing hymns in in the jail. What would possess a man to to do that very thing because it was a joy for Paul it was a joy to live for Christ to serve Christ even a joy to die for Christ if that came to be and you see it over and over again with Paul there is this humility that Christ had shown him such mercy and grace Uh, it didn't matter where he was who he was with what was happening in his life there was this internal joy that could never be taken away what are the thieves that rob you of joy today? Circumstances, people, covetousness, you know, um, comparing yourself with others where they're at, where you're at, worry. But what is it that guards joy in our lives as Christians? Isn't it humility? Isn't it always remember what you've been saved from? Who has saved you? Isn't devotion to Christ? Isn't it your prayer life? Isn't it it fixing your eyes on Jesus, the one who with joy endured the cross for you and me? Church, we must never lose this joy. Amen? A little girl, one time she saw a mule and she said to it with a long face like that, you must be a wonderful Christian, she said. (laughs) Let that never be the case with those of us in Christ. It's a joy to be a servant of this gospel. That's important because of the third thing he talks about here, which is the suffering of ministry. There's more to the sentence, verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, And then of which I became a minister, he says. Notice the suffering of ministry here. Paul tells the Colossians, the suffering is for your sake. Which is a remarkable thing uh, to say. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, he tells them, for your sake. The sufferings of Paul, again, are, are... well documented throughout the New Testament. I mean, he he experienced rejection and hardship and misrepresentation and slander and loss and conflict, and it's all over the places. Woodhouse writes this cleverly. It's striking to note what Paul does not say here. He does not say, now that I have become a gospel servant, I rejoice in the status that has been conferred on me. The authority that has been given me, the reputation that I expect to win, the impact that I'll make, the financial security that all of this will bring. No, there's none of that. 
He says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Just as there is a a gospel joy, there is a gospel suffering, he says. The difficult part of the verse is when Paul says, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. That's the most difficult verse in Colossians. And tons have been written about that that verse. What we can say for sure is that Paul is not saying there that something that Christ did in his suffering was insufficient and not enough. As though we could look at the cross and say there was something lacking in that. No, hardly, church, right? Amen? It doesn't mean that. Jesus said, it is finished. Everything has been done for our salvation. There's nothing more to add, nothing more that we can add. Notice how he frames it, though. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I think Paul is talking about his own suffering there, and, and not primarily Christ. He's reminding us of, of what Jesus said in John 15, 18. You may, this may, may be a favorite verse. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Wow, what a downer, huh? Jesus said, just as the world hated me, they're going to hate you as my followers. And, and, and the blows that they were not able to incite on Jesus, I think by that he is warning them, they're going to continue to incite them on you. Because of me, Jesus says. The hostilities have not ended because Jesus has gone to heaven. The hostilities have not ended for us because we are not in heaven yet. And so Paul looked at every scar on his body from all the stonings and all the floggings and the beatings that he took. He saw them as for Christ. Not just for Christ, he says in this verse, but for his church. Which is a remarkable statement, isn't it? For your sake, he says. I rejoice at my sufferings. Paul realized, I think he's saying, that this, was, this suffering was necessary to build Christ's church. Suffering was necessary for evangelism to take place. Suffering was necessary for discipleship to take place. Suffering was necessary for church planting. And for missions, so that the body of Christ could be built up. Brothers and sisters, the the pattern for ministry is no different today than than the pattern that our Lord lived and the pattern that he taught us would come. Jesus suffered to reconcile all things to himself. And we who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, we will also suffer. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. He's not saying, well, that's because they're so much fun. But he's saying because 
of the glory of Christ and His gospel work that continues. Suffering brings us nearer to God. Philippians 3.10, Paul said that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings. Suffering brings us Helps us to know Christ. Suffering brings assurance of salvation. Peter wrote, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's a sense in which suffering brings assurance into your life. Suffering brings future reward. 2 Corinthians 4.17, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Suffering advances the gospel. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.12, writing again while he was in prison, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There's a cost, he says, but I want you to know the gospel is going forward. And here in Colossians 1.24, suffering edifies the church. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. All of this, he tells them, is, is for you. People he's never met. This is for you. It's so that you'll hear the gospel and be, and be saved. It's so that you will mature in Christ. If I endure anything and everything for Christ, for his gospel to be made known to you, this little church in Colossae, for you to be made mature in Christ. The minister of this Gospel, like the Savior in whom the gospel speaks, suffers. And the pattern for this gospel ministry is suffering. Don't let that discourage you today. Our Lord suffered, didn't He? Don't let it discourage you. There'll be discouragements, there'll be setbacks in ministry, in the life of a church. There's always discouragement. There's always setbacks that come with faithful ministry. Don't be disheartened by those things. Don't be discouraged by the unimpressiveness of all of this. Don't be discouraged by the unpopularity of all of this. Don't let that dishearten you. Suffering is characteristic of a faithful gospel ministry and the ministers who serve in that ministry. One more this morning. I want you to see the scope of ministry. It's found in the last phrase of verse 25 of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I didn't look up some of the translations, other translations on this, but <clears throat> I think more literally in the original language it says something like to fulfill the word of God. 
to fulfill the, the word of God to, or to bring the word of God to fulfillment. And I think what Paul is talking about here is the scope of his ministry. He wanted to fulfill the word of God. In other words, he wanted to do all that God had called him to do. What had God called him to do? Well, we read from Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road earlier when Jesus said to him, we'll we'll continue that in Acts 26, verse 16, Jesus said, For I have appeared to you, Paul, for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul was given and called to a ministry to the Gentiles. That did not mean he did not preach to Jews or preach to anyone for that matter, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, He wanted all of them to know Christ, but his primary mission was to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We saw this at the end of Romans, Romans 15. He said, Paul said, I was called to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And then he says, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, Romans 15 16 through 20. That was the scope of his ministry. And when you read Acts, you look at Acts, Paul basically, basically went on three mission trips. Four, if you count his all expenses paid to Rome while he was in prison. (laughs) But pretty much three mission trips. And it's interesting when you read that, that he actually went to the same places on all three trips. His first trip, he went with Barnabas, he went and preached the gospel, planted churches. On his second trip, decided to go back. But, but it's interesting to go on another trip, but he decided to go back to those churches. And he says to strengthen those churches. And so he went back to them, this time with Silas. And he went a little bit further with the gospel. On his third mission trip... He went back to the same churches. And then a little bit farther yet. It's very interesting to me that Paul had a very specific purpose or scope for his ministry. And the fact that he kept going back to the same places and the same churches. And and yet the testimony of what Paul did is that the gospel impacted the whole world, didn't it? Paul was about fulfilling the ministry given to him to speak only of Christ, to speak to the Gentiles, to speak in places where Christ had not been named. But literally, the scope of it, he went on three mission trips to the same places and the same churches. And I think this is a wonderful truth here. I I can't say it better than this quote from MacArthur. The men who affect the world or impact the world 
put limits on their ministry that allow them to do it with depth. Paul goes back to the same people three times. Jesus works with the same 12 people for three years. And it ultimately affects the world. Here's the last part. The scope that you're going to have in your ministry is not related to how fast you travel. It's related to how deep you plow. And the ministry principle there in terms of scope is is it seems to me what Paul and Jesus, what we see modeled there is is the, the notion that if you worry about the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. If you take care of the depth of your ministry and you be faithful where God places you, He'll take care of the breadth of it. It seemed to be Paul's philosophy of ministry. That was Jesus' philosophy of ministry. And beloved, that's a philosophy of of ministry that I've tried to make my own here. Whatever place I'm pastoring, I'm not driven by the breath of ministry. It is not my aim to see how large a crowd I can get, but rather my focus is the depth of ministry. How deep can I plow? Because I believe if I concern myself with fulfilling the Word of God or even making the Word of God fully known, as Paul says here, then God will bring about the results that He wants from His Word. And so my scope is preaching is a ministry of the Word and His, God's scope, is bringing the growth. That's a radically different philosophy, I know, than many, many churches today. A philosophy that is kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. This approach here of Paul takes time, patience, and endurance. Speaking of time, I'm going over, I'm sorry. Richard uh, Johnson, this is the last thing we'll say. Richard Johnson was the first chaplain to Australia in 1788. You probably have not heard of him, um, but you probably have heard of his mentor, whose name was John Newton, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn we sing. Um, John Newton was not just a great hymn writer, but apparently, and I'm going to research this more, but he was the author of some great pastoral letters that he sent in the history of the church. And at one point, Johnson, whom Newton was mentoring, Johnson was very discouraged about the slow progress of his ministry there in Sydney. And so Newton wrote him a letter in return. Here's what he he writes. He says, I have not been disheartened by your apparent want of success. I have been told that skillful gardeners will undertake to sow and raise a salad for dinner in the short time while the meat is roasting. But no gardener can raise oaks with such expedition. 
You are sent to Australia not to sow salad seeds, but to plant acorns. And your labor will not be lost, though first appearances may be very small and the progress very slow. You are, I trust, planting for the next century. I have a good hope that your oaks will one day spring up and flourish and produce other acorns, which in due time will take root and spread among the islands and nations in the southern ocean. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? I think that's what Jesus did, and that's how Paul ministered as well. And I think that's the perspective that we should have today. The source of ministry is God. The spirit of ministry is joy. The suffering of ministry is both a glory to Jesus Christ and a pattern for his church. The scope of ministry is to preach the whole truth to all people in the place to which the Lord has called you, but it is also to plow deep and to trust God for the growth. Christ is worthy of all of that. Amen? Do you know him today? Is he your Savior and Lord? You have an opportunity to respond to him today. We're going to sing a hymn. I'll be here in the front. I would love to pray with you about that. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the clarity of it. We pray for your help now in applying it to our lives, living out what you have asked us to do. So help us to be faithful in that today. And uh, we, we ask that you would already make us useful as we get ready to leave and go back out into the world, to our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods. Help us to be faithful in this ministry that you've entrusted us with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.